In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Bethlehem is in upheaval, not because it is war-torn, but because there is a famine in the land. And a husband and wife and their two adult sons have no option but to flee. They've got to eat, they've got to live, and there's no bread around in a town literally translated as the house of bread. They've got to go. So they do. They become immigrants to a place that would be the exact opposite direction of where everybody else in Israel might want to go. They go to a place called Moab because there there's bread and they settle. And while they're there, their two adult boys find wives, both of whom are from there. They're Moabites, they're not Jews. They're Moabites, and the mother of those two adult sons knows what's going through her head, knows what everybody would say if they had heard that their boys married those kind. And while they're in Moab, and while they're beginning a new chapter, and while everything seems to be picking up in some form or fashion, her husband dies, and then her two married sons, they die. And so here is this widow, now with two widowed daughter-in-laws from another country among a people who are held at best with disrespect, and now they're left with a certain decision. What now? How shall we then live? In that moment of upheaval, a crisis comes to them all. They're all at a crossroads, and a decision has to be made. They don't have the luxury of time or reflection in which to make a decision. And so that's where we pick up in a passage that we're going to consider today. I might ordinarily have you stand, but I won't. I just want you to sit, and I want you to hear this story again, or maybe for the very first time. It's from the book of Ruth, and I think for reasons will become very clear why we've decided to make it an object of our focus today. But with that context in mind... We begin in verse 15 of chapter 1. And Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is the word of the Lord. Father, whatever you might have for us in this, I ask that you would help us to hear just one thing, maybe just one thing that might guide, reproach if needed, comfort, encourage, and motivate us to love and good works. In the name of your Son, we ask it. Amen. There's a phrase that's been quoted in recent years. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called quiet quitting. It is a phenomenon that is 
found among some who will either start a job and take a couple shifts and then within a couple shifts leave. It's not for them. They just leave. Or they stay, but they only do what is the minimum required of them, nothing else, for reasons of feeling malaise or being withdrawn or not really accepting the, the idea of the work itself. They just do the absolute bare minimum, nothing more. It's just a job. It's just a paycheck. I don't want to do anything. And so it's this thing called quiet quitting. It's kind of a controversial subject, but it's there enough for people to notice and coin a phrase. And it's typically in the province of a younger generation of workers. But there's also something similar to that that applies to not just the young, but also the older, not just to men, but also to women, to students and those who have been gone from school for a very long time. And it's what's summarized by something you've heard before by Henry David Thoreau. He said this, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What's called resignation is confirmed desperation. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. If you're on the men's retreat, you've heard that. It's this idea that we know is the word apathy. Apathy is an old word. It owes its, word, owes its origin to a Latin word called acedia, and it means sort of a mental and spiritual sloth. Nothing is of interest. Nothing inspires. Nothing motivates. And Dorothy Sayers, an author of the last century, summarized or rather unpacked what apathy was in a sentence. She said this, it's the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. It's the sin of an empty soul. That's the laughter of identification, isn't it? Quiet quitting, quiet desperation, apathy, whatever you want to call it, we're all susceptible to it. And the exact opposite of it is what we just heard exemplified in the story of Ruth. We have been patiently going through each section or slice, if you will, of what is known as the fruit of the Spirit. That work of God in believers by faith in Jesus who indwells believers that by his work, the life and character of Jesus excuse me, is produced in us. We've talked about most, we don't have many to go, but the one we're talking about today is the very opposite of apathy, the very opposite of quiet quitting and quiet desperation. It's the fruit of the Spirit known as faithfulness. And you would be hard-pressed to find in the pages of Scripture someone who demonstrates and exemplifies what faithfulness is more so than Ruth. And what we want to do appealing to that segment of her story is to do two things to talk about faithfulness. To talk about what faithfulness is. And we'll summarize that under five facets of faithfulness. But before we're done, we're going to mix metaphors. It's going to be okay. <clears throat> we're going to talk about the five facets of faithfulness, but then we're going to talk about one fuel for it. I can illustrate to you faithfulness till I'm blue in the face. It doesn't matter. It will inspire you for a day. What will inspire you for a life? 
That's what we want to do. We're going to consider it in those ways through the story of Ruth. So you've already heard the text. I'm going to dive right in. As you heard there, both in my introduction to the context of that story, if you've never read it, you should go home and read it. It's four chapters. It'll take you 15 minutes. Life has already cost them. The dreams they had have already been dashed. The circumstances that now before them appear at the best bleak. If there's any light, it is hiding. They're in the midst of darkness and disorientation. And at the beginning here, Ruth, the Moabitess, is at a crossroads, literally. Does she go back home to Moab? Or does she go with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem? And what compounds the moment in the crossroads is that Ruth has already said to her two widowed daughters-in-law, go home. And one of her son's wives, Orpah, has decided, that's what I'm going to do. And so Ruth sees her sister-in-law, Orpah, walking back to Moab. And in that moment, Ruth is up against a crisis. She knows there's a consequence for every choice. And in that moment, Ruth chooses to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. Ruth chooses that. She's widowed. She knows what's at stake. She knows what's before her. She has to consider the cost. And that's exactly the very first idea that we're trying to consider here when it talks about what is the first facet of faithfulness we all have to come to grip with. Faithfulness is always at cost. Uh, 25 years ago, when I was contemplating marrying this woman, I was driving into Dallas on Interstate 30, uh, <clears throat> considering the weight and the significance of that decision. And I have blaring in my radio on the way in there, of all people, I know this will be a shock to you, a David Wilcox song. And the chorus goes like this. I said, God, will you bless this decision? I'm scared. Is my life at stake? But if I see, if you gave me a vision, would I never have reason to use my faith? I was dead with deciding, afraid to choose. I was mourning the loss of the choices I'd lose. But there's no choice at all if I don't make my move and trust that the timing is right. Yes, and hold it up and hold it up to the light. Hold it up to the light. In that moment, you're having to consider all the things that you're having to say no to in order to say yes to this woman, to yes to anything. And in Ruth's moment, she's having to consider everything. She's having to consider everything that she has to set aside and of the choices that she's having to say no to because there is no faithfulness apart from choice. She has to find a reason to go. And she chooses to follow Naomi. She has to set aside a familiar future back in Moab. She has to set aside a safer future in her mind because she's oriented to it. She can move right back and everything would be just as it was, even though through a little bit of sorrow, through a little bit of tears of what she's lost. But she chooses to go. And that is a cost to her. So I'm telling you something you don't already know unless you're younger. If you're going to be faithful in any way, if you think you can do it without some sort of cost to yourself, you don't understand what faithfulness is. Ruth is trying to teach us what faithfulness is. It is obedience in one direction. It is what the economists call an opportunity cost. Any choice you make means there are several choices that you now cannot make. 
Therefore, it's at cost. That you know. Choose one, you release others. That's the deal. Soren Kierkegaard, he said this. Life can only be understood backwards, but it has to live forwards. You don't know what it's going to happen. All you can do is step one foot in front of the other, and then when you look back, who knows what you will find. The nature of faithfulness, the first facet you have to reckon with is that it will always be at cost. The second is similar, it's not identical. Alongside cost, there is something else you have to reckon with. Naomi and Ruth, uh, they both head back to Bethlehem. And, and Naomi, you might say, is not only Debbie Downer, she is Debbie Despair. And, and she plays that card whenever she can. And when they get back to Bethlehem, they have first priority. We got to eat. We've got no land. We've got no holdings. We've got no access. And we've got no help to work the land. Everything is different for us. We don't know what we're going to do. And we've got to get field. We've got to get food. And look, there's fields everywhere. And in that day, there was no John Deere, so there were no combines that went out to glean all the fields. And so you think to yourself, in that day, easy. They're not going to pick everything. Surely I can go in there and gather a little bit of that. But when you think about who Ruth is, she's already got strikes against her. First of all, and if you weren't noticing it, it's repeated over and over again by our author here, by our editor, she's from Moab. She's from Moab. They call her a Moabite. They say, did you know that Ruth is a Moabite from Moab? You don't say. Yes, she's from Moab. Okay, look, do you have, any of you, any of you have that uncle uh, that comes to Thanksgiving and then drinks too much and decides to tell you everything they've ever thought without any kind of filter and before they're done, they have used the bathroom on the fireplace hearth? that sends everybody screaming to the coat closet to leave, and for whatever reason, that guy is never invited back to family gatherings? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say it was worse between Israel and Moab, okay? And you can read up on the history about that, but Israel and Moab had no love lost. Remember last year, we talked about the king of Moab, Balak, who dispatched, you know, this this prophet named Balaam to go and frustrate and destroy Israel. And by the time everything was over, Balaam is actually helping out Israel. That's, that's kind of where Moab and Israel is. So you've got a Moabite woman in the middle of Israel in Bethlehem. Strike one. Strike two, she's a Moabite woman. She's got nothing. She has no food. She has no access. She has no network. And in that day, you don't know. Like the, the modern things that are true for women today, rights and responsibilities and access and network and networks and things like that, that's just not true for her. Second strike. And now she's by herself in a field with a bunch of guys that Boaz has to come along and say, boys, strikes against her. In that moment, we remember, if it wasn't already patently clear, that if you're going to be faithful you're going to subject yourself to risk. There's no way around it. There's no such thing apart from it. Risk is just the cost that you have to face after you make a decision that's going to cost you. It's the nature of risk. 
She could have gone out in that field and gotten nothing, gotten nothing, turned away. She could have gone out in that field and been harmed or mistreated or worse. It's the nature of risk. Risk always puts you in jeopardy. And while she's there, who does she encounter? This guy named Boaz. He's the landholder. Not even sure much about him, except we discover that he sort of has a rather amicable relationship with his workers. He sees her, he takes note of her, and what does he do? Let's reach back to what we talked about last week. The fruit of the spirit of kindness. In that moment, he's got kindness in space. He dignifies her, she falls to her feet in homage to him. He stands her to her feet, he dignifies her, he protects her, from those that might have ulterior designs for her, he provides for her and more than she could even carry. It's kindness. It's kindness in spades. And what makes his effort of kindness for her on her behalf so striking and what motivates it is that she has subjected herself to risk. She could have gone out and come back with nothing. She could have gone out and been hurt. And instead, she comes back with more than she could have ever imagined. Faithfulness. At this point, you might be wondering, tell me again why I would want to be faithful. Because you've talked about cost, and you've talked about risk. Uh, Hard pass? How about no? Are there any other options? There are. But what if... What if faithfulness, as I've described it so far, in terms of cost and in terms of risk, that it is um, that there's something actually driving it more than just your capacity to show prowess or prove something. It's more than just about resilience. The, the third facet of faithfulness that I think Ruth helps us to see is that faithfulness always, always has a greater goal. It's been a long time. I don't know if they do it anymore. Do people still swim the English Channel? Uh, I don't know if maybe that's not a thing anymore, but they did back in the 80s and the 90s. Like they lather themselves up with the you know the cream and the boat goes along them and they chew on biscuits on the way in. But look, um, <clears throat> they don't do it just to say, "Look how persevering I am." Right? They have a goal. The goal is to get across the channel. They have a destination in mind. Well, faithfulness does too. Faithfulness has a goal, and in this one, in this story, it's very clear that what faithfulness has a goal for is for Naomi's good. It's for Naomi's sake that she subjects herself to cost and subjects herself to risk. Now, with that said, if Ruth is oriented towards Naomi's good, then there's that moment just as they're walking back into Bethlehem that it's, it's, it's comical if it's not sad, right? Ruth and Naomi show, everybody's a buzz. Oh, look, they're back. Who's that with you, Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. It's not my name. Call me Mara. That means bitter. I went away full, and now I've come back empty. Now, in that moment, our editor of the story does not cut to Ruth's eyes. But you gotta wonder what Ruth is thinking in that moment to hear her mother-in-law say that she came back empty. 
Naomi, maybe mostly empty, but not all empty, right? Not empty. What am I? She's there. And are we not familiar with that kind of experience in our attempts to be faithful? You can do everything you can, imaginable, for their good. And in that moment, they're like, they don't even see it, they don't even care. And in the moment, you attempt to go, well, forget it, I'm done. And instead, Ruth says, I'm not forgetting it, I'm with you. Even though in that moment, Naomi just doesn't see anything other than her own sorrow. It's the nature of faithfulness to experience, the see, the, is to pursue a certain goal, and in this, oftentimes, it's all about for their good. It is about forgetting oneself and seeing to the good of another. That's the nature, that's the nature of faithfulness. It's the third facet. And that pursuit of another one's good, it, once again, is not simply to be a manifestation of consistency. It is the pursuit of what we would say is the whole unity of the fruit of the Spirit. Which I want to pause here for just a minute to say, can we consider what the unity of the fruit of the Spirit is there? And how faithfulness fits into thinking about what the fruit of the Spirit really is? It's easy to think of these things like several things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I, I pick this, I do this, and it's all like that. But you and I need to see that faithfulness and the fruit of the Spirit are one. They all go together. It is like, and we'll show you in, in, in due course, it is like an orange slice. You chop an orange slice in half. You have never found an orange slice cut in half in which one of the sections is missing unless it's deformed or unless someone has eaten of it. They're all one. They're all there. Let me help you to see faithfulness in the context of the unity of the whole fruit of the Spirit. Here's, here's my attempt at kind of bringing to, a, to a, a place of unity what we understand why far. Here's faithfulness. What is faithfulness? It's this. It's the patient act of love that is seeking the goodness of another often through but not limited to kindness you have to go back and hear what that one is about sustained by obstacles to it by joy and peace that's not of this world you pull any one of those out of the equation it's a jingo table to change another metaphor you pull one out it's no longer a thing it's no longer coherent faithfulness fits with all of them so far and it will fit with what still comes after that demonstration of faithfulness its goal is the good of another, but it is part and parcel of the whole fruit of the Spirit. Okay, we've said a lot so far. I want to I show you something that captures it. We've seen that before. It's from the movie The Notebook, right? And here is a story of a vibrant, impassioned woman who near the end of her days is often forgetting herself, literally, and everyone else around she loves. And here's the moment where her husband, played by James Garner, well, you'll see. Hi, sweetheart. I'm sorry I haven't been able to be here to read to you. I didn't know what to do. I was afraid you were never coming back. What's going to happen when I can't remember anything anymore? What will you do? I'll be here. I'll never leave you. 
need to ask you something. What is it, sweetheart? Do you think that our love can create miracles? Yes, I do. That's what brings you back to me each time. commit yourself in faithfulness to another, whether it's in marriage or friendship or vocation or mission field, whatever it may be, you are obviously subjecting yourself to cost and the risk of great loss, and you're also signing up for another's good such that it might be enlisting yourself through their good through tears and bewilderment and, and disorientation and all those things. But what you hear in that moment is reaching for something that's even more grand than the very difficult and mundane circumstances of living. It is reaching for the miraculous. It is reaching for something that is stronger and broader and deeper than even the love that exists between them. And, and that, friends, we've, we've talked about the experiential reality of of faithfulness so far, and we've talked about sort of the ethical dimension of it where it's seeking another's good, but now we've got to get spiritual and they've just helped. Because there is cost and risk and a goal to faithfulness. But what you heard in the passage is that faithfulness is also a word you might not typically associate with it. It's the word refuge. Boaz, having heard of her and learned of her and realized her bio and where she's from and told about all of that, he puts it all in context in verse 12. He says to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have now come to take refuge. That might sound familiar. It's from Psalm 91. It was in our call to worship. Faithfulness is an act, not just for their good, though it is that. It is an act of taking refuge in one who is grander than you and who is eternal the one who is a refuge to us. Faithfulness has practical value, but it is irreducibly a spiritual moment and a spiritual pursuit because you and I are trying to take refuge in him who is grander than us and in whose life and light and hope makes even the deepest darkness and the greatest sorrow and the unimaginable tragedies we might be facing today or any day in a different light. Faithfulness is an act of taking refuge in the Lord and it's at the same time trying to offer refuge to another because that's what Ruth does. She's taking refuge in God, knowing, scarcely knowing the story, the promises, or the law of God that she's finally married into, but offering refuge to Naomi. That's a fourth facet. The fifth, it's about fruitfulness. We've already said that 
the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. But where faithfulness is, it bears fruit. And in this moment, in chapter 3, not only does Naomi Ruth risk herself in order to gain favor and to gain food for Naomi and her, she at some point, in a way that, well, here's a different way of offering yourself in marriage. She goes to Boaz and offers to become his wife. For her sake, no. Why? That fruit may come from their love and their union such that Naomi's line is persevered. And in that moment, Boaz accords her an even greater commendation of faithfulness. They marry, and in the short term, a child is born. A child named Obed. And that child ends up being placed in in Naomi's lap celebrating the fact that what she thought was the end of her story now continues. And then we discover by the end of Ruth chapter 4 that that ends up being the grandfather of King David. The fruit of faithfulness can operate in the near term in what you might see. The fruit of faithfulness can happen in ways that you might never have imagined ever happening and while you are off the watch. It's how faithfulness works. It's how faithfulness can work. Those are the facets of faithfulness. What's the fuel for it? Ruth is an example of faithfulness. She's demonstrated those five facets in striking fashion. Can't miss it. And in that sense, she's also an argument for it. The goodness of faithfulness. Even if nothing had turned out like she thought, if she got to the, the land and there was nothing for her to glean, or if Boaz went on a business trip to, you know, Syria and she, they missed each other, or if the other kinsman redeemer swooped in and said, yeah, I'll, she can marry me, she can live in the back house, but I'll at least take her land. All of those things could have happened, and it's a different story, but it would have changed nothing about the admirability of what she did. She's an argument for faithfulness, the nobility of it. She's an example of it, she's an argument for it, but she's also the anticipation of it in a way that none of us could have imagined, not even the way she could have imagined. She's an anticipation of a greater faithfulness that will extend to more people than just her own household. Ruth and the Lord Jesus share a great deal in common. They both left what was familiar, so to speak, that which was of their glory. They left it for another's good, They submitted themselves to all manner of harm. They were both, so to speak, outsiders, trying to show the so-called insiders of what it means to be faithful, what it means to take refuge in the Lord. But where Ruth subjects herself to risk of what she might lose, Jesus walks face first into lost, sacrificing it from the beginning, knowing it was happening, And by his death, your sins are forgiven. The stranglehold of fear that the devil holds on upon you is loosened. The kingdom is established. And the favor of God is reconciled to you forever. He is that work. You and I, left to our own devices and only reading the story of Ruth, We'll be inspired by that. But you and I are not good at faithfulness. Not only are we not good at it, sometimes our version of faithfulness is eminently, if unconsciously, very self-focused. 
It is more about us than anything else. And sometimes we are out to prove something in the course of it. And when you try to prove something other than faithfulness for its own sake, you get your reward. It's just not the reward of the Lord. It's something else. We have to be rescued, one, from our own inability to be faithful, but also of the way in which we might pervert the nature of faithfulness. That's why we need the gospel. And that's how it works. Jesus' faithfulness to us was not dependent upon our faithfulness to him. That's why they call it grace. But the older you get, and the more opportunities to be faithful in your past that you consider, and the more opportunities you know that you've let pass by to be faithful and you failed at it, the more you begin to think, what's the point? Why bother? I've failed it before. What's the point? And I'm here to say to you, because of the nature of the gospel and of grace, this is what's true. In the same way that Jesus' faithfulness to you did not depend on your faithfulness to him, but quite in spite of your faithlessness, so the worth of your faithfulness from here on out does not depend on the consistency of your faithfulness in the rearview mirror or the lack thereof. That's what the gospel tells me. I hope it's what the gospel will tell you. And that's why my application to us all, myself included, you're already committed to any number of things. You all have promises in whatever form, whether it's in education or vocation, whether it's in marriage, whether it's to children, whether it's children to parents, whatever it might be. You already have commitments. Faithfulness is really simple, even though we've talked about it really broadly. It's what Sinclair Ferguson says what faithfulness is. Here it is. It's just saying an ongoing amen to the commitments that we've made. Faithfulness is being consistent, being reliable, being able to be trusted, and being dependable. That's faithfulness. It may never get written up in a book. It may never be thought of as heroic. It's just that. And that's why I believe I want to spur us on all the love and good works in this way. I'd like you, in response to what you've heard from Ruth and from Jesus, to review what are those things to which you are committed already, things to which you have already made promises, and then I'd like you to pray for the next seven days. In what ways, in the light of the gospel and of the story of Ruth, do I need to renew my commitments to those things that I already have made commitments to? Those commitments, sometimes our faithfulness to them is second nature. We just do it. But sometimes those commitments are so second nature that we have forgotten what it really means to be faithful to them. I'm preaching to myself. That's what the fruit of the Spirit calls us to. And we're not pretending that we can just sort of muster up the courage to do it. But we are asking the Lord to move in us that it might become even truer for us now. Let's pray. You've heard our prayer. You've heard our preface to it. I ask that you would quiet us and still us in whatever way we can. I ask that you would help us to reckon with your faithfulness to us in spite of our faithlessness. I ask that you might help us to see the beauty of the faithfulness of Ruth and the even grander beauty of the faithfulness of Jesus and how it, it rescues us so that we might walk in courage and in love and to walk in faithfulness even if it is through tears 
We ask now your strength for what we do not have. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.